Hello and welcome to episode 216 of Sun Like It Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shum. Today on the podcast, Scott, stick together, because we'll be reviewing the long-awaited follow-up to the highest-grossing film of all time, Avatar, The Way of Water. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm great. It is Christmas season. Scott, I have on my calendar a reminder to watch Glass Onion a third time when it comes out on December 23rd. Later this week with my mom, who's very excited about the film. I have assured her that it's a great time. and I think the key theme of the last like week, week and a half, both in my life and on the podcast, is that we've been reviewing great movies, Scott. Um, and I'm just happy to be here once again to show my hand and say we are reviewing another great movie on the podcast today. I mean, this is what you hope for at this time of the year, right? This is when all the big awards movies and everything are coming out. And obviously yeah. they they deliver sometimes and, and sometimes they don't. But yeah, in terms of the ones we've picked, I think we've maybe been a little careful about it because obviously we didn't go for something like the whale or empire of light, right? Which these are movies that are in that awards category, but are not as well received. So that's um, true. We didn't go yeah, for black Adam. Know, I think we earned it considering, you know, we did watch some pretty terrible films <laughs> through the middle to even late middle part of the year. Um, sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, again, this this is what you would hope for. It's getting harder and harder uh, to make the top 10 list. Again, looking at my whole list, it's kind of like, you know, there's 25 movies or so that I want to put in my top 20 for us to talk about when we when we get there in a few weeks to our list. But, um, yeah, you know, and it's interesting because I wouldn't I don't know that I would say it's necessarily been a particularly amazing year for movies, but maybe there's just a lot of movies kind of of similar quality at least for me um i think there's been very few past few weeks like very few like extraordinary standout films yeah compared to prior years i mean even 2020 is a weird year i don't really think about that one too much just because so much shifted around there were still great movies in 2020 no doubt but 2021 i mean having something like you know i think five or six five-star movies for me in 2021 i mean dune you know one of the most sensational blockbusters i've seen like ever period and that being followed up with things sort of on the other end of the spectrum like drive my car and power of the dog which i was a bigger fan of than you i know but you know things of that variety like uh you know even some of the other stuff like uh um nine days um like it's it sort of had 2021 spanned like the full spectrum of you know blockbusters like dune and also like like emotional like contemplative pieces like nine days and drive my car and i feel like we've had great movies but maybe none as great as those um at least in the in the depth of the year but yeah i think going deeper down the list like i'm i'm very pleased with where you know the top 10 top 20 movies i have this year but i wouldn't rate rate it as highly as 2019 or 2021 yeah, I mean, there are still a few weeks to go. You know, won't count it out yet. Um, yeah. Babylon is, I guess, you know, the big one that we still have left for this year. I know I haven't seen yeah. him in talking, so that's another one sure. for me. Um, and I'm, I am yeah. interested to see Empire of Light. I know that's probably not going to end up in the top 20, or at least I'm not expecting it to, just based off other reviews that I've seen. But again, as I've said multiple times in the podcast, I'm probably more down for Sam Mendes than most people. And Olivia Coleman's one of my favorite actresses, so. We'll see. Yeah, uh, I, I still, you know, have tentative uh, plans to check it out. Um, 
but the whale is one that I honestly have no desire to see anymore after um, some of the a lot of the tweets and reviews and stuff I've seen about it. It it does not seem like something I'm gonna get anything out of. Um, sure. But tomorrow night I'm going to see all the beauty in the bloodshed. You know the front oh, nice. for uh, yeah. best documentary. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you know that's it's quite a watch. It is quite yeah, a watch. That's that's one of the the few I can I have left on my 2022 watch list. So I can cross that off and we're just a couple weeks away from the, the list. So don't forget yeah. Black Adam on HBO Max. You have to cross that one off before the end of the year. Of course. Of yeah. course. You know, very meaningful film, as we now know, um, yep. with Henry Cavill um, you know, not gonna be playing Superman anymore. Um it, it, that movie just really made the the meaningful impact that we thought it would. The hierarchy and that of is power in the DCEU has shifted, indeed. Yeah. Well, that is as much DC talk as you'll be hearing from us tonight. Uh, because as sure. mentioned, our film today is Avatar The Way of Water. After 13 years, AWA has provided with a sequel to 2009's Avatar, which is also the most recent effort from The Way of Water's legendary director, James Cameron. Set 10 years after the events of Avatar, The Way of Water picks up with Jake Sully, played by Sam Worthington, having permanently assumed his Navi form. Jake is married to Natiri, played by Zoe Saldana, and together they are raising a family of biological and adopted children in the lush forests of Pandora. However, the Marines are still plotting to colonize Pandora, and their latest strategy involves implanting the memories of soldiers past, including Stephen Lang's villainous Colonel Korich, into Navi avatars in order that these new super soldiers might avoid detection upon entering Pandora. In order to protect his family, Jake decides that they must relocate from the forest to the water, where they meet the reef-dwelling Metkayina people and their leaders, Tonawari and Ronal, played by Cliff Curtis and Kate Winslet. But the recombatant Quaritch will stop at seemingly nothing to track down Jake Sully, and suddenly Jake must worry not simply about raising his children, who are attempting to adapt to the new life among the Metkayina, but also protecting them from harm as war approaches. Scott, is there still magic left in James Cameron and Pandora after such a long hiatus? Or does The Way of Water feel like a soggy retread of a film that, despite its financial success, fails to endure among popular culture? Scott, I thought this movie was huge. I thought it was a huge, huge W for James Cameron. I mean, the guy, I mean, there's so many jokes or like, you know, clever remarks you could make about him just sort of going to New Zealand or Australia or wherever he's been for a decade and a half and toiling away on whatever new technology or underwater filmmaking techniques or I don't know, today I was watching a video where he was talking about like the uh, jet propulsed like stand-ins for like the whales they used and and some of the some of the other underwater creatures when they were like preparing to film the actual scenes that they would they had these like specially made animal almost like animatronics that are like jet propulsed so they could actually jump out of the water and like propel themselves in the air for 30 and that's how they practiced the scenes are just nuts um and i just think it's just a huge success for for blockbuster filmmaking um you know we're probably getting tiresome on this podcast you more so than me maybe but like i don't disagree with the spirit of some of what you say about um some elements of blockbuster filmmaking today outside of the exceptions that you know we we sort of rave about now i just talked about dune a few minutes ago top gun maverick is a huge example of it earlier this year but there are 
the those are more accept those feel like more exceptions in the rule for your big blockbuster films in the age of you know post MCU um, blockbuster filmmaking. And I talked about it briefly on the podcast I think earlier this year when I got to, the chance to see Avatar back in IMAX. I think back in September maybe about how watching this film or watching Avatar like 13 years or whatever after it originally came out in a film that's like so in a film like society that is very saturated with MCU type script writing and filmmaking it, it, it is a really stark contrast to how other blockbuster films are constructed and you said it i saw in your letterbox review you point you you made a similar comment as well about the the the, the screenwriting in this stands out in particular not because it's the sensational storytelling necessarily or because it's a groundbreaking you know themes that are being explored but just because of how different um it is in, in terms of just writing characters and writing like you know human beings that aren't cracking a joke you know in every other sentence and the truth is is that the fact that that is the way it is written to me makes it infinitely more watchable which sounds just pretty crazy and so not only does it have this element of being infinitely more watchable but when you actually get into the nitty-gritty of what cameron has done with the sequel avatar i mean it's just a breathtaking film I, there's like so much conversation online and i just want to get get in front of this and just talk about it now about like motion smoothing and high frame rate i didn't notice any of it when i was watching yeah. the movie like I, I i'm not saying these people are like lying or like or like seeing something that's not there that's fine whatever i scott shelton did not did not think about and, that for a second and now well, and now scott so. i am asking you to go back and watch a good film called gemini man and uh, i'm sure that you will come away this time with the same conclusion did i did i comment on that and during our gemini man review uh I mean, I know you didn't like the movie, and I think that might have been part of it, but I don't know. Maybe I'm misremembering. Yeah, I, I do think that was why a lot of people didn't like it. So, yeah, I mean, the main the main thing that I feel like I didn't like about that movie was um, Will Smith at the end of the film. But we, we can move on. We can move on from that unfinished unfinished CGI uh, work in a in a post MCU age. Um, no, I, I I do think that the high frame rate in that film is a bit different. I did, I was reading a little bit into it and talking about how the high frame rate really helps a lot with underwater sequences and it's mainly for at least the people who are complaining about it the more above i guess out of water sequences that are smoothed with high frame rate i don't know maybe as someone who just like plays a lot of video games at higher frame rates like the fact that this looks like a mood like the fact that this is of higher frame rate than 24 frames per second i mean like all video games these days pretty much run at 60 frames per second if you have like good hardware so it's just like to me it didn't i didn't notice it that much and all that said and all that aside, I just, I, I fucking loved watching this movie, Scott. Like I was just in pure heaven for three hours and 12 minutes watching this film. You know, again, I, I feel like I'm parodying a little bit of your letterbox review, but I, I really did agree with a lot of it. Like the, the fact that you have Sam Worthington leading your franchise is like <laughs> almost unfathomable, but like, it just works. Like, I think he's, he's, he's good as Jake. Sully. I'm sorry. He just like is good as Jake Sully um he, he works as this sort of guy who you know has sort of adopted into the society and has this history i think that he benefits a lot in this one because i know he's motion capture and he's still performing but the fact that he's not playing like a human i think that actually benefits him a lot in this movie i think the child actors that cameron found to play the kids i mean sigourney weaver aside which we could have a separate conversation about like i mean like they're great they're awesome i thought they did a fantastic job um up and on the cast list 
And yeah, I mean, there it is weird that Sigourney Weaver is playing like a 13 year old or whatever in this movie. Like it is objectively strange <laughs> to hear her voice come out of Kiri's mouth for a while. But like after a little bit, like you just get used to it. Um, and obviously Jim has a lot of ideas about that that are not fully fleshed out in this movie, but I'm sure will be very relevant um, in future films. They're more just sort of teased at. But cast, you know, then there's like the whole cast list of Zoe Saldana. I think it's hilarious that Stephen Lang like really is the villain in this one again. Not not a not a bad comment, just absolutely hilarious that he's back as the villain again. Um no no feeling positively or negatively about that. But I do think Miles Quaritch is the type of villain that um it is a one he's a one note type villain in the first movie that somehow, some way Marvel just like hasn't been able to create a one note villain quite like him. It's just like kind of strange. Like he's just pure evil and that's yeah. all there is to him, which honestly I it like. Works. Like I it works. don't care. Well, in the first movie, he is. In the second, in this, yeah, this well, that's may where, have been I was going. where you were going to go. Yeah, exactly. And I have mixed feelings about it, but yeah, they obviously try to do more with it. Yeah, I think I think there's there's a lot going on, a lot more going on in the second film with Quaritch for sure. Um, I mean, this is not a spoiler. Like he is, uh, he is a quote unquote recombinant in this film. I think is what they call them, um, mm -hmm. which are basically his platoon of soldiers sort of reincarnated in Navi body with their memories and their genetic code, I guess. I don't know. Fused with Navi. Um, sort of similar to how people like Jake and Norm and um, Sigourney Weaver's character from the first film, who I can't remember the name of, Dr. Augustine, maybe. Um, they have sort of like Navi avatars, hence the name of the film. Um, they sort of take that technology, I guess, a step further and take the genetic code and just fuse it with an avatar. Um, where there's no sort of like linking up into your avatar or whatever, kind of like Matrix style from the first movie. It's just you're this person. And there's definitely some interesting like themes inter interspersed within that. And again, he's not this character. It, they don't fully lean into it yet. I'm curious if they will in future movies. But there is an element of the film of like this being wrestling with the fact that their memories and their identity are Quaritch, but they are not themselves Quaritch. And I think that that is something that is lightly touched upon and is not fully fleshed out in the film. And it's certainly something that that I would imagine comes up pretty, uh, pretty intensely in future installments uh, in the franchise, where it, which it seems like they are going towards how many there will be probably depends on the performance. It sounds like the third Avatar film is like mostly filmed already, like 90 plus percent filmed. Obviously, there's still tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds that have to be sunk into special effects and post-production. So it's not like the film is done by any stretch of the imagination, but it seems like there are pretty good ways of the way there on the third film. But overall, you know, we've ta I've talked a little bit about the cast there. Kate Winslet, I think is, a, is an interesting addition. Edie Falco, uh, Jermaine Clement. There's just like random people in this movie that I feel Very like they random. just like pulled out of New Zealand. I, I kept looking at Jermaine Clement like, I know that is him. Like that, yeah. that has to be him. But yeah. he doesn't have an accent. He's not playing somebody like weird or quirky. I was like, yeah, my brain was breaking basically yeah. watching him. Yeah, but I mean, to not have talked yet about the sort of spec, the, the Jim Cameron trademark spectacle of this film is probably criminal. After I'm like seven or eight minutes in talking about this movie, but yeah, the underwater effects like. No movie has ever looked as good underwater. You and I were texting after we we saw the film on Friday night talking about how can you even release a film like Aquaman 2 after this movie comes out? Like, honestly, like what an embarrassment I'm sure it's going to be um, compared to this. Like the film is 
gorgeous. The action is incredible. Um, stuff that whales do in this movie will make you jump up out of your seat, as I as I uh, saw on Twitter someone say, which I totally agree with. Like, I just think everything is just really cool about this movie. And it's just, again, going back to maybe the comment about like sort of screenwriting and blockbusters in a post-Marvel world, I just feel like there's, the, and this is true from the first film as well, there's just sort of a an open-heartedness of the film, an earnestness of the film that doesn't come off as too campy or too um, cringy. Like it, it comes off in a way that feels, that Cameron makes feel genuine. And I care about all these characters. It's just the truth. Like, I don't know, like they're not underdeveloped. I, I care about, I mean, even more characters in this movie than the last one, probably if you count all the children and spider and all of them, like I was invested in all their, in all their arcs. Um, and the fact that Cameron has 192 minutes to sort of let you get to know most of these characters. I mean, there's a middle third of this movie that is literally just all these kids hanging out on, on an Island. Um, and I wasn't bored for a second. I thought it was really cool. Um, I think there is some obvious flaws and, and obvious things that, that we can point out about the film. But for me, just like sort of the summation of all like the incredible aspects of the film that really resonated um, on with things that I just love about big, large, huge blockbusters like this, it sort of just carries it. it. It makes it just like sort of erase all those flaws from my mind and not really care too much about the fact that a 70 year old woman's voice or whatever Sigourney Weaver is, is coming out of a 13 year old um, stuff like that. Like it just seems, it just seems trivial compared to like the monumental nature of the filmmaking. I, I loved, I loved Avatar the way of water. Yeah. I mean, it is almost impossible and you know, people will say we're belaboring the point, but whatever it, it is almost impossible to think about this movie outside of the context of where we are in terms of blockbusters right now. And yeah. To, frankly, I do not, do not know if I would enjoy this movie as much as I do if it wasn't for what we have, you know, seen over the last 13 sure. years. The fact that it does feel like such a breath air, breath of fresh air is what makes me more willing to forgive some of the flaws, right? Because I'm sitting there saying, well, yeah, I could see these flaws. At least it doesn't have these flaws, though, right? Like thinking about the the films that we see that just have the same issues over and over again. You know that I've yeah. I've gone on about it, but the the awful look to these films, the you know um, lack of emotional stakes, the constant barrage of comedy that is going on, the fact that everything is so calculated and linked to you know this greater universe. They're they've become soulless exercises in a way. Um, and this is not that right. Like it, it yeah. now, I mean, I will say, you know, to, to give, to be fair to Marvel, I guess, um, they have a lot less time to work on these films than James Cameron had to work on Avatar too, right? Like he was been working yeah. on this movie for years and years and years now. It's a problem um, of their own making though. It's, it's not necessarily yeah, a problem I'm and, to forgive them of. No, I, I'm not forgiving them uh, of that. Certainly, yeah. certainly I'm not. But um, yeah. just it's something that makes it not necessarily a one v one comparison. But sure, um, you know, yeah. To your point, Marvel has just come out and said recently, like, hmm, maybe we should rethink things, right? Maybe we should not be focusing on quantity. Four, four movies and seven quality. TV shows a year, or yeah. whatever it is. Um, imagine that shattering revelation. But yeah. Um, 
but yeah, because of all of that, um, I had a great time with this movie and I really love a lot of things about it. Um, even in spite of some of, you know, the flaws, people are clowning on it and people were always going to clown on it. Plenty of people made up their minds before the movie came out about what they were going to say. But, you know, what you're describing with screenwriting is the same thing that Cameron has pretty much always done. It's he's a very earnest screenwriter. Um, And in the late 90s and, you know, early 90s, when when Cameron was, you know, making a lot of films, that was fine. That was, you know, what these movies were like. And now, you know, it's it's the same thing, honestly, as the Raimi Spider-Man films. Right. Like that is their hallmark of when it comes to the screenwriting as well, is that they are so sincere and earnest. And now people love to just, you know, make fun of Tobey Maguire and whatever um, in the same way that they're now making fun of Avatar The Way of Water. But it's, you know, it's if you don't like it, fine, whatever. But all the other movies out there are for you guys, right? Like the the Marvels and all this stuff that we're talking about right now. There's nothing else like like this movie. So you have plenty to enjoy, you know, let us enjoy this one movie that we have that is different from everything else. Um, and again, I think it's different in a good way. Personally, I feel like it is better to actually feel emotion and feel like the the people who put this film together actually have, you know, love and care for what they are doing. And you know, actually want to convey some sort of emotional truth at the heart of their story and are not just organizing a bunch of scenes so that we can get to the next movie, right? That's, you know, that that's what some of these Marvel films feel like nowadays. Yeah, um, and, and, I think to the, and I think to that point, like, again, as someone who still enjoys Marvel movies, enjoyed them for a long time, I enjoy them less frequently now than I think I used to and I would like to. But I still enjoy it for what it is. But when I go into it, the frank truth is that I'm not expecting what I get. Like when I walk into a Marvel movie, I'm not expecting Jim Cameron's Avatar sequels. You know what I mean? Like I'm not expecting that quality of craft. And that's fine. Like I, like you, again, more recently, you certainly have soured quite a bit more on the experience. But I go in expecting a certain level of quality, which is below what we're talking about here, in my opinion. And oftentimes I get that. Sometimes I'm disappointed below that level, that bar. In fact, I've been disappointed more recently in the last, you know, two years or whatever than I would like to be. But I still enjoy it for what it is. At the same time, like, yeah, like, I don't know. Like, there's just a level of um, even setting up, like, if we're talking about franchise making, which is what you're talking about just now, like, at the end of this film, I mean, going into some spoilers here, but, like, lights, I guess, indirect spoilers. But, like, it sets up a sequel. Like, it 100% sets up a sequel at the end of this movie. At the same time, I feel like the end of this movie asked a very interesting thematic question that I think it had been threading through earlier parts of the film. And I was okay with that. Like, yes, you can see how they're just like franchise building or whatever, so they could, so Jim Cameron can make his third Avatar movie. In fact, I mean, he's written the scripts of all these movies apparently like 10 years ago. So it's not like they didn't already know ahead of time. But at the, in the process of franchise building, it feels like there's a purpose to it more so than just like we need to make another movie it's like jim cameron wants to explore something in the next film and that is why he's doing it yeah i mean that the individual films are not suffering um you know 
It doesn't simply seem like in, in, are, they're, they're not there in service, in service of, yeah. you know, yeah. the overarching whatever he's trying to accomplish. I mean, James Cameron has even said, you know, that he will only make three films if this is not if this is not successful, if the if the way of water is not successful. Now it is going to be successful. However, that shows you, right, that this is not like, again, Kevin Feige, who has like, you know, everything blocked out for the next 10 years or whatever, of you know, what Marvel is going to be doing. He is. He just wants to make these movies like because he enjoys making them. Um, and, you know, if if people aren't enjoying them, like then he's obviously saying that he's not going to continue. But anyway, uh, you know, the like I said, the earnestness of it is maybe like my favorite thing about it because it is so different um, and it is such a breath of fresh air that a movie is like this is trying to make me feel things. Yeah. Um, and not just, again, you know, sneering and smirking and joking and wisecracking at every single turn. I don't think there's a single joke in the movie, Scott. Like, I, I honestly don't. Like, and, you know, it, I, it's funny that I have taken this position because I generally am a person who, when it comes to, like, action movies and stuff like that, I would rather that the film lean into the more ridiculous, yeah. absurd side of it all. But the the type of the the Ryan Reynoldsification of these movies has led to you know something that um, I just don't enjoy at all like a constant yeah. unfunny you know wisecracks and they are getting in the way of actually letting emotional beats land um, so <laughs> we're getting off I'm getting off topic but it's probably inevitable that this is where our conversation was going to go but anyway uh, so that's We've gotten you know, that's the thing I enjoy the most about the movie obviously it looks spectacular as well all of that I expected yeah. um I joked recently cuz I watched uh, Mirino which is a Croatian film which is getting some some buzz for international feature this year and it's set on this Croatian island there's some underwater cinematography and stuff in it and I was like well not going to see any better underwater cinematography than this this year um yeah. And, but obviously, um, you know, that was a joke because we knew what was coming here. And yeah, this this stuff about how he did it all is crazy. And, you know, Kate Winslet was holding her breath underwater for six minutes and all this, you know. They all insane learned. Stuff. Basically, everyone in the cast had to like free dive or whatever. So like Sigourney Weaver yeah. and Kate Winslet are like bonding, holding their breath for six minutes or whatever it is. Underwater is like Winslet nuts stuff. Learned to hold her breath, uh, you know, underwater for six minutes for a movie that she is in for like. 10 minutes or something, or at least her, her, the significance of her character, you know, is, is not very significant at this point in time. Maybe it will become more in the future, but um, I think she said in an interview that like, she don't like her shot, her, her scenes in this film only took a month to shoot, but she yeah. will have a larger, a much larger part in the ongoing narrative, which makes sense to sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. If you sign her up, it's probably because you have big things in store, but I was I was compelled by the movie, you know. I again, I was I don't think I was emotionally like overwhelmed, or I wasn't, you know, incredibly moved by certain things that happened. But again, because because the ideas are like very simple about, you know, he's trying to keep his family together. It's it's a fast and furious movie with like some actual intelligence about it, you know. <laughs> they're they're I, just I actually, talking about family. Yeah. But. I do think it's a little bit more than that. I think there is a lot of it, like it obviously is eco spiritualism yeah. and like sure. connection with nature that I, I don't know if Dom and the boys are exploring in the fast franchise. I just I was mainly yeah. making a joke about the yeah. you know family the yeah. fact that they say family in this movie as much as if more if not more than in a Fast yeah. and Furious film. But this you family know, sticks I think together. It 
the the you know the runtime goes by pretty smoothly like because it's really broken yeah. up into three parts like it really there's like the first hour is like the plot heavy part right the building the exposition putting everyone where they need to be mm-hmm. second hour is just kind of like they're vibing out on the yeah. you know with metkayina people yeah. and you have some of the stuff going on with the kids um and you know just kind of trying to learn to adapt to this world and then the third hour is just, just all action just yeah. all action. It's, it's it's you know it's it's classic james cameron stuff um yeah so i just you know i think it's it's always doing something to keep things moving in a way that like it rarely ever drags despite the runtime so i had a great time watching it it pretty much delivered what i wanted you know there are lines and everything that I might not be a huge fan of or certain character, you know, motivations or certain directions that characters go in that like I, I may like, again, I can see the flaws, but like you're saying, the experience, the spectacle and the sheer differentiation of this whole thing from what, what is saturating the market right now makes it, uh, you know, a unique experience. Um, and yeah. one that it feels like was worth the weight and the labor that went into it. Yeah, I mean, Cameron's been working on other stuff for the last 13 years. Like, I know he, I'm pretty sure he has a screenwriting credit on Alita Battle, Battle Angel, for example. Um, and he has a story credit on Terminator Dark Vader. But, you know, this is, this is his baby for the last 13 years, and the baby's good. It's very good, Scott. It, it really is. And, you know, it, I'm actually interested to see where it goes from here. Like, which, after I watched the first Avatar, I was like, I enjoy this movie again. I like it because it's different. I'm not, like, some huge Avatar stan or anything. I'm still not, right? Like, I don't think, I think this movie is better than the first Avatar. I don't think it comes close to touching, you know, some of Cameron's classics, like Titanic, Titanic. and Terminator yeah. 2, and even Terminator 1. But, like there there's no denying that like you put cameron's name like he he is almost beyond reproach at this point because he is just he's doing his own thing and if he is attached he's gonna make it work like that's just how i feel at this point because again in spite of everything in spite of the inherent ridiculousness of all this the fact that it took 13 years the fact that you know, people will say all this stuff about, well, you, you know, this movie hasn't isn't in the culture, right? Like it, nobody knows the character names. Nobody's thought about Avatar for well, it, it made four hundred and forty million dollars worldwide, you know, this weekend, and the original was the the highest grossing movie of all time. So I think there are probably people that care about it, maybe not on the same level as they care about something that you know, again, like Marvel that's coming out every single year. Like it's just a totally different model, but. Um, James Cameron, he's just going to make it work. Like that's that's ultimately what it comes down to, and he certainly did that in this instance. Scott, um, you know, this is not necessarily a movie that relies on powerhouse performances, right? Like you're not going to sure. see anyone nominated for Oscars probably for their performance in this film. And we've talked about obviously Sam Worthington. You know, it, again, this is kind of the James Cameron of it all. He just makes it work. Like Sam Worthington was in. You know, tried to try to start another franchise in a way with Terminator Salvation many years ago. And uh Terrible. that's one of the Terrible. one of the worst movies I've ever seen, probably. Like it, yeah. and and he is not good in it at all. Um but yeah, here he plays Jake Sully again, a character that like a lot of people were saying, Oh, we're not really connected to him. 
maybe for that reason, they try to focus a little bit on, more on the, the kids here, right? Um, you know, obviously, Joey's always held on his back. It's his wife, Materi. But we have, you know, the three biological children of them. And then we have sort of the two adopted, quote unquote. You have Kiri, who is Sigourney Weaver, again, as we've said. And then you have Spider, um, which is Jack Champion. Um, and he's the son of Colonel Quaritch, of um, Stephen Lang's character. Um, and, you know, I mentioned him there as well, Stephen Lang. Um, he's back as the villain. You know, we mentioned Kate Winslet, Cliff Curtis, um, Edie Falco, all these people. It's, it's you know, it's there's a lot of recognizable people in it. Um, Definitely. What did you think, Scott, if anyone stands out to you from the cast or what Cameron was able to get out of them? Yeah, it, it does really feel like a true ensemble type performance. Like, I would agree with what you said. I mean, I did comment earlier that, that I thought Jake Sully and Sam Worthington's performance as him, like, it really, I mean, I think it really works for this movie. I think it, I think it works even better than the first one because Sam Worthington gives off such huge dad energy in this movie. And like, he's just a dad, like in this film, like he's basically just a dad um, protecting his family. He doesn't get everything right. Like he's definitely not a perfect dad. I think that's it. It it is intentionally like done that way. Like he has his flaws, he has his past that, and his limitations. And, uh, you know, maybe you could say, you could argue that maybe we should have seen more of Zoe Saldana, who is in the film throughout, but doesn't really have that much going on in this movie and i thought she was i thought she was the best part of of the first avatar movie in it's terms very of much a, a dads and sons type of movie like yeah 100 percent. but you were really laying out the the movie in parts and you know obviously he sam worthington is a huge part of the first and third parts of the film but that middle part it's just the kids honestly it's it's all the kids and i think that they are really what hold the movie together in terms of performances I think that they give you such a, they're just all such a breath of fresh air. And although not all of them are quote unquote nice or whatever, I think some of those performances are a bit um, rough around the edges intentionally because it is these, you know, there's obviously some themes going on around, you know, almost like a nationalistic type stuff where like xenophobia and people who are different or half breeds, et cetera, et cetera. A question which I want to come back to, Scott, let's not, let's not forget to come back to this because I have so many questions about, the number of fingers that certain of the children have. Um, we're going to get into a lore question about this. Two of them have four, but two of them have three fingers, Scott. And it's very confusing about um, about that. Anyway, I think the performances in the middle, like the whole island stuff. So when I saw Avatar in September, at the end of the film, they had a, a sneak preview of Way of Water. And that sneak preview was the first scene where you see them exploring the ocean underneath where Kiri it's all of them are there but like you see kiri like interacting with mainly with a lot of the uh a lot of like the underwater creatures and like if you just like wrote those scenes on paper scott they would sound so boring but the film is so gorgeous that it really pulls it together and i do think that sigourney weaver is sort of like the standout of them all although i do really like the um the young actor who plays is it loak i think his name is Britton dalton I think okay. he's, I mean, he's sort of given the most to do um, mm-hmm. in the in the film, probably, of the kids. Um, but I think between him and, and Sigourney Weaver, I think they're probably the two standouts. I, there is an asterisk. They're just like, I'm sorry, I know I said this already. They're just asking that. It's so weird hearing Sigourney Weaver's voice coming out of this, like, teenage girl. Um, but you do get used to it after a while. And I think that 
all things done with intention. I, I think there is a very specific reason why why he wants to bring Sigourney Weaver back. One, because he loves her, I'm sure, because they work together so much. But two, because I think there's like actually something meaningful that can be done, I think, with that. And I think that'll be explored in a future, in future avatars. Um, but yeah, Loak, who's the 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 second son of Jake in Neytiri, played by Britton Dalton, he's sort of like wrestling with this sort of outcast status where he's not as good as his brother, Natayim, um, as a, in terms of being a son to what to Jake's standards to being like sort of like the the good fighter and obedient son who's the leader and things like that. But he's not really he's finding it very difficult to fit in with the new with the um the Medakaya as well. So not the Medakaya, that's not how, that's not the name. That's not what they're called. Metkaina. The Metkaina. It's the Omadakaya is the is the other people, yes. The Metkaina. So I think he's sort of really feeling that sort of outcast status sort of between his own family and this you know these new friends that are uh, people that surround him and i think that like the story he goes on over the course of the middle of this film and the third act i think it really works um i think if there's an emotional payoff in the film it is his character's journey and then also the final scene his character's journey is related to the final scene of the film um but if there's like a real emotional crescendo in the film it is definitely um some light spoilers, a a vague spoilers. There's a burial at the end of the film that I think um, is sort of like the emotional crescendo of the movie, and it's sort of related to to Loak's story, in, at least in in an indirect way. And I just think it really works. I mean, Stephen Lang is a is just a great one note villain, kind of great, just evil dude doing evil stuff. Um, I think the ensemble nature of the film works works to a lot of success. And Kate Winslet, Edie Falco. Just like random, really incredible actresses showing up in this film that don't have too much to do, but you know, bet the house that they'll have something really important coming up in the future. So it's good. To, it's good to see their characters introduced here, and what they have to show is promising. I think Edie Falco could be. I mean, it seems very random that she's playing like this leader of Bridgehead City or whatever they call the new city now. That's not Hell's Gate. Um, and yeah, again, Kate Winslet doesn't have much to do as the sort of tribal matriarch of the Metkayina, but um it's very has a, has a couple of quite emotional scenes um in the film so great job like solid um industrial performance by the entire cast and in, in an ensemble type way yeah i mean stephen lang was probably my favorite part of the first movie honestly from a cast perspective um and sure. i do think he you know is just great as the Hoorah, Marine, right? You know, that <laughs> yeah. is just somewhat single minded. And, um, you know, he, he has this almost like Javert thing going on, right, with him and uh, and Jake Sully here, where he's just determined to hunt down Jake Sully, like, and he will use everything at his disposal to, to get him, you know, just because of, of what's happened in the past. Well, like, I think one of the fat, yeah. Sorry, he did a little answer. bit more than seal a loaf of bread, but still, it does feel like uh, that's kind of a comparison point there. One of the fascinating things too about Lang's performance in this one is that, again, they didn't fully lean into it, but you can see the gears turning about him wondering this version of, of Korich, like this, um, I don't know, whatever it's called, whatever they call it. I said it earlier. I don't remember what recombinant. Recombinant is really questioning why he's doing this. I feel like he really is questioning what, why he's doing what he's doing, and he still does it in this movie because it's his orders or whatever. But I wonder if they're going to do something there. 
not to make him turn face or whatever in future movies, but I wonder if there's going to be a continual sort of like emotional questioning of why exactly he's continuing to hunt this guy. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some potential there. I will say that I kind of just like the single-minded evil dude at being the villain. Like sometimes villains or people are just evil and it's uncomplicated and um, we don't necessarily have to have this sort of killmonger thing for every single um you know villain character nowadays um that's true although i think i think stephen lang's mile corch in the first movie in like six movies is probably not going to work every time so they got to do something different well which is you could always you know introduce a new villain but anyway um wrong yeah (laughs) Yeah, I what I bring that up because I have mixed feelings about where the movie takes the character. And, you know, we are getting into spoilers a little bit here, but obviously, you know, he ends up meeting, quote unquote, his son, right? Spider, which is actually the real Corich's son. But, you Mm -hmm. know, he has all the memories and everything. And, you know, he he knows all about the relationship with Spider and when they first set it up, it's like, oh, here, you know, I I see what's going to happen. He is going to like, all of a sudden, you know, his, his son is going to win him over and he's going to like, you know, do a face turn kind of like you're talking about, right? Like he's, he's, uh, he's going to have to actually connect with his son and he's going to change. And I was like, that's not really that interesting to me of like a direction to take that character. Yeah. But then I actually liked it because I thought, they're they're like subverting your expectations because then totally. it's like there are times for him to like again where you expect that he's his his aggressiveness is going to continue to like subside and he's going to like be one of like when they are burning the the one part of the the island um and he's just ruthless he's just merciless again and you're like okay well no they're they're just gonna you know lean right into it and say this guy just is evil and then it kind of whips back around at the end, right? Because um, he like, has uh, two gunpoint. He has, he has two, two holding two at gunpoint. And Natiri comes out, and he holds. She holds Spider at gunpoint, and it's supposed to be like a you know child for a child thing. And you know, at, at first Stephen Lang is like, I don't care. You know, he's not my son. Just go ahead, shoot him or whatever. And so you know, or I think she she has a blade, right? Because she yeah. Yeah, she ends up cutting him and he, you know, he backs off basically. And so, you know, it's kind of like, oh, he does have feelings thing. And so I don't know if I love that whole, you know, like, again, it feels like it's flip flopping a little bit about what it wants to do with the character um, over the course of this movie. And, you know, the note that we're left on obviously is Spider rescues him. Spider decides to rescue him instead of leaving him to die. Because he um, saved, because he saved his life, like showed that yes. he cared about him enough to. Yes. Yeah. But then when they both like after he pulls him out of the water, Spider's like, "Screw you, I'm out of here." Um, and so it, you know, I'm sure that they're going to try to do more with this father son relationship and repairing it or whatever as the movies go on. Um, you know, I think they'll do it, more with it, but it, I'm it, curious if it will repair. I, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be some complexity to it. Um, already there is right like the fact that he sort of has gone behind the sully family's back and saved his life and not told them i think is going to be that like that's going to come up at some point in the future movie whether he i yeah i just think that there's something interesting there i definitely understand your hesitation 
around it and I and I was a little surprised that like I didn't it didn't seem there was an indication that he cared about this kid earlier in the movie. So I think that was a yeah. bit of a I do think that's a bit of that is a flaw in that in that moment. Um but I do think that it makes for an interesting character study if that is the I mean that it does seem like the direction they're trying to go. I think there's something interesting to be mined there. And that but see the thing is that I guess what I'm getting at is that feels more like a Marvel type. Like that's you know, that's a Thanos type story, right? Like, you know, he has his his stepdaughter, stepdaughter, whatever she is, Gamora. Um, and there's a whole Adopted thing daughter. that happens with that. Um I guess the more interesting side of it to me, right, is him exploring like the process that he has gone through, like the recombinant or whatever, and like his connection or perhaps lack thereof to the actual Korich, right? Like the, maybe even like the ethics of what they're doing and that sort of stuff. That is the more interesting side of it. And if, if they want to explore that through exploring, you know, yeah, what I'm talking about, then they could probably get something interesting out of it. But if it's just like a classic, you know, morality, well, the villain has a son, right. And you know that's what's going to yeah. change him. Then I I'm agree with you. I agree with you. I've sort of been operating under the assumption that it is the former and not the latter there. Um, but if you're right and they go that direction, then that does seem less interesting. I do think that I, I don't. I don't think that being a recombinant is just is is just merely a tool that's going to be discarded by Cameron mm-hmm. for the plot. I do think that's going to come back around and serve some sort of some sort of significance um in the future movies i could be wrong that is pure speculation on my part scott i want to ask you next about the world of the metkayina and you know where a lot of the movie takes place you know it is the way of water they are reef dwelling people Um, there are a lot of scenes that take place in the water obviously there are these whale-like things that uh become significant to the plot one of them in particular um Mm -hmm. forms a bond with loak uh, one of the, the children of the Sullies um, and, you know, where you're talking about sort of the bond with nature type thing that this movie is doing, you know, a lot of that happens because, you know, Loak um, basically bonds with this one whale thing that has been banished, right? Because he yeah. killed um, someone. He was aggressive uh, towards basically towards in, in a self-defense type situation, but um, he was aggressive yep. and that goes against the code of the Metkayina people. So he's, you know, been, been banished and he ends up rescuing Loak at one point when he's left stranded by um, the son of yeah. the chief Metkayina people. Yeah. Um, and so then it becomes a whole, well, he's not what you say he is, right? Like, I, I know him, and he's my friend, and, you know, he's he's got a good heart and all this stuff, and he's just trying to help us. Um, type of, you know, eco-commentary, like you're talking about. Again, maybe a little bit simplistic. I'm not coming to this movie for, you know, that sort of, you know, a, a lot of depth to that sort of thing. But um, that it, it, I have to say that is one of my least favorite parts of the movie, just because you know, again, it's a me thing where the whole bonding with the whales and non anthropomorphic yeah. animals. Although I guess he does kind of talk a couple times, but um, yeah, he does talk. Yeah, yeah, but still, it, it's not really something that I. It's not your you thing. Know, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it is a little cheesy for sure. Not, not the good type of cheesy when he's, you know, when, again, when Loak is running around, like, you know, he, no, he's my friend, you know, like it's a free Willy movie or something like, uh, you know, (laughs) I, I don't really care about that, but sure. You know, again, what is, what is uh, on the other side of the scale and which is tipping the scale is like that the whale things are pretty cool. Right. And when they're in action, it's like, it's, Oh my God. Very cool to look at. And you know, not something that we're used to seeing. Like again, that the creature design and everything is is well done, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to other movies. Sure. But what did you think about the whole you know new world in this movie? Yeah, I loved it. You know, I was I was honestly, I was kind of surprised that we spent so much time in the first hour just with in the same jungle that and forest that we were in the first time. I thought that. I was kind of surprised it took so long to get to that new area. I liked the balance though. I liked getting to see a little bit more of, you know, the Pandoran rainforest and the um the floating mountains or whatever they I forget what they're called. Um the Hallelujah Mountain. They're like called the Hallelujah Mountains or something like that, I think. And but then yeah, switching gears, going to the reefs. Gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. I want to go vacation wherever they shot, uh, wherever they shot those scenes on the coast of New Zealand Islands or whatever. Um and yeah, to- the Tolkoons, which I think is the name of the species of whale that you've right. been talking about. And specifically, I think it's Pyacan or Pyacan or something like that, which is the one he befriends, the outcast that he befriends. I I liked that. Uh, I, I think, again, sort of the counterbalance to, to your point, which is something that we've revisited many times on the podcast. I am much more susceptible to that sort of um, emotional penetration, if you will. Um, As most people worked, are. Like, yeah, and it works I'm for a me. minority. Yeah, there's there's like obviously some, when they're bonding earlier, I think that actually the scene where they first, where he first is saved by the Tolkien, like that is some like prime, like shark, basically some shark creature chasing, um, chasing Loak through this yeah. out, like outer reef area that they that he wasn't supposed to go to. And right before he's about to get absolutely eaten by this shark, um, the Tolkoon just comes in and absolutely hammers the shark. It was just a great, a great moment. It's, That's um, it's the Phantom Menace. There's always a bigger fish moment. It really is. It absolutely, it absolutely is like that. Yeah, and that so that was like a great introductory scene, full of tension, and then the sort of next, I feel like thirty minutes of the film are kind of devoted to them bonding and learning the. I think one of the things that Cameron does so well and makes Pandora specifically so feel so lived in is that I feel like he just has a really great way of storytelling and lore building in his movies. So you have a story like this, where you learn a lot about like the Tolkien, these like the species and what their culture is like, which feels like so random and so specific, um, but super fascinating. I think that you sort of get something similar in the first film with the, the just like the spirit tree. I forget what they call the tree or whatever, um, where you connect with AWOL. There's like a reef that's also like this with the Metcaina. But I feel like you get sort of that that through that in the first film. And this one, there's just another example. Like, that's one example. There's other examples, too. I think just the Met kind of people and, and hearing about their sort of, like, ethno-diversity from, like, the four, like, how they've evolved over time um, to be different. Like, they have, like, the, they have, like, the, the, like, wider arms or whatever to, like, swim, the bigger tails, things like that. I just think, like, that sort of, like, lore building in the new area a, it makes a lot of sense, and B, it just works so well to make to make the world feel so rich and differentiated from the first film, and 
not be sort of a retread because I, I do think this is not, this is like a higher level point that we haven't talked about too much. I do think that a, a lot of this film is playing some of the greatest hits of the first movie and remixing it a little bit. I think it's like indisputable to say that, but because they do it in such a different way and such a different setting with different people um, with slightly different stakes and different things on, on the sort of the balance on the scales, I think it, it sort of works with a lot of success. There's like enough diversity in it that it doesn't feel like a rehash, even though I watched this first film, you know, like a couple months ago um, again. And I do think that it is Cameron's skill at making this world feel diverse just by traveling, you know, five or six hours. It's more than that, but like, you know, traveling 12 hours or whatever by, by flight <laughs> to this reef, it feels like a whole different world, even though it's all Pandora. Um, it's absolutely like the, the point, right? Like being one with nature, it's not about necessarily where you're living, but it's about being able to be bonded with the natural habitat around you, whether that's people, whether that's plants, whether that's animals, whatever that is. Um, and I think it, yeah, it just really works really well. And Cameron just has an incredible knack for world building, I think, in this case. I mean, granted, he's had a lot of years to work on it to flesh it out, but he did it successfully. Yeah, I mean, he's not only playing the greatest hits of Avatar, he's playing the greatest hits. Like, if it's Oh, yeah, I mean, like, there's the there's the capsizing well, ship at the end of the movie. Well, that's what I was going to say. The the last yeah. act of, like, you know, wrecking the boats and everything. Like, this is a guy who's wrecked a boat before. Um, he certainly knows how he sure it's has. done on, on the big screen. Um, and, I mean, when the, yeah. when the Tulkoon comes out of the water and wrecks that, and wrecks, like, the punctures yeah. on the boat, oh, my God, screaming. Uh -huh. Incredible. Yeah, it it was hype for sure. And then even you know the the ending when they're like underwater and like this sort of lab type thing almost like it looks like the the factory like industrial setting that is at the end of Terminator and Terminator Two. Um, sure. Like so he he's he is you know there are all kinds of sort of visual references and everything to um, his previous work that are throughout this movie. But it, but it know, doesn't it feel doesn't lazy in any way. No, he's applying yeah. them in a new setting. And, at three hours and 12 minutes, I think he's allowed a couple indulgences in there, right? When he's doing, as we talked about, so much else to, like, make this its own thing. Um, yeah. Scott, you mentioned it there. Maybe this is kind of the other major thing to talk about is sort of the spiritual aspect of the movie and the mm -hmm. tree and the sacred sort of tree and everything. And Kiri yeah. in particular, which, again, is the Sigourney Weaver character we learn has a particular sort of bond that she ends up being able to to use sort of to like it's almost like a she has the force in a way um we kind of see her in, yeah. in you know the battle towards the end um, she has a very high awa count or whatever, whatever. yeah 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 midi chlorians but yeah, yeah um she what did you think about how the movie handled this like i will say like i again this is another thing that they are obviously setting up for the future right because i sure. do have some questions of like especially her relationship with like her whole backstory of like, you know, oh, yeah. being the daughter of um, Sigourney Weaver's character, like yeah. kind of where did that come from? Like, who's her father? Like they kind of like have a, have a little bit of a conversation about it, but then it's like, they don't obviously answer the question. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, wh where sort of are these, these powers coming from and how are they going to be used in the future? What, what did you think about this? angle of the movie yeah I, I looked it up it's the tree of souls not the spirit tree it's okay. the tree of souls is what they're called um yeah i mean there's a, there's definitely a whole arc there with kiri who is yeah the daughter of dr augustine who died you know in the last act of 
the first film, they weren't able to transfer her dying soul into her avatar like they were able to do with Jake later on in the film. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there's obviously a deeply religious and spiritual angle to this. I mean, people are saying that, like, you know, it's kind of like a, it's a, it's a Christ-like figure, dare, dare I say it, the fact that her conception is a question mark. They don't know who the father is because it doesn't seem like there was a father. They The scene that I feel like one of the scenes you're referencing is when they're joking about how Norm is her father or whatever. Um, and that because he's like, yeah. he's always around in the background of the videos that Dr. Augustine has made. But obviously she has a, a really deep connection with with nature and the, the natural life on Pandora. She's able to sort of control the, I don't, I don't know what they're called or even if they have a name, but like the creatures that are supposed to basically represent the force of Awa in inside it. It's like the weird, like little, um, almost like a uh, dust bunny, like creatures in the forest. I don't even know right where, where they just sort of float, float around. Those are supposed to be like the little beans of Awa or whatever. And I, and I have a feeling there's like small fish that she's controlling at the end, the sort of incandescent minnows or whatever is sort of the equivalent of that in the, in the ocean. So there's obviously some really strong connection, very force-like for sure, to um, the natural, um, you know, the, the nature of, of Pandora. And it's definitely set up when she connects with the, the tree of souls at the, that the Metcaina have, she has this vision of her mother, but then goes into a pretty violent seizure and takes a long time to arouse out afterwards. So, and she's only, and I guess it's worth noting that she's not healed by the medicine of Norm and the other doctor that they brought in. It is the spiritual um, sort of healing that is performed by Ronal, which is Kate Winslet's character. So there's clearly some strong connection to, to the forest, who the father is. I mean, it's definitely implying heavily that Awa is the other, is her parent. I feel like, I think that's not, yeah. not a spoiler to say that, or it's not too much, it's not too much um, hypothesis to say that that is the, that is what the film wants you to think, at least right now. And maybe that is the direction they're going. Maybe they're going with some more like a religious parallels with that. Um, I don't know. I, I think it would be kind of weird if, if they go fully that direction and there's not some other sort of twist to it, but it also feels simultaneously kind of weird if you go the direction of, oh, no, actually, Norm's just your father. Like, I'm just using that as an example, but, like, it would also be kind of weird the rise if they of go that Skywalker. direction. If they, exactly, no, 100%. If they rise of yeah. Skywalker, it would be kind of weird, too. So I'm not sure yet how to feel about that, but that is because the arc feels like it hasn't even exited its first act really like that specific character arc. And I like Kiri. I think she's a really interesting character. Um, extremely quirky is an understatement as as a person, but it's just a, a nature girl, you know, just vibing, just vibing with the nature out there. And I think that's cool. I'm very interested to see where it goes. And I, although I may have some question marks around it, I, I put my faith in, in, in Big Jim to cook up something meaningful with that arc. And I think it's gonna be a big focus of future movies. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think people are just going to have to be patient with some of this stuff. Uh, some people don't want to be patient with it, probably, and that's fine. Again, if you don't like it, you don't like it. It's obviously different from the things that a lot of people like nowadays in terms of their mm -hmm. blockbuster movies. But again, I think that is a plus for us. 
Um, you know, Scott, anything else? I mean, of course, there's there's so much you could say about the. Movie. Okay, you got to talk about the kids. You got to talk about what the deal is with the fingers. Yes. Okay. Um, go off. Not even a go off. It's like pure questions. Like so, Kiri is adopted, and is the daughter of Grace Augustine. She has four fingers. Yes. Well, five, I guess. She has she has human finger, like the human number of fingers. I was getting people are going back and forth on Twitter about like four versus three. She has four digits and a thumb. <laughs> like she has five. She has five fingers, like a human. Which I guess like is day. supposed to imply that she is the child of two humans. Well, no, no, no. Uh, again, this is maybe. I don't know. It's a great question mark. Because yeah, the because, the half breeds are the four fingers are supposed to be. At least that's what they say in the movie. Well, the well the, the Navi and like all the Navi have four fingers three three digits and a thumb and like natiri has four fingers oh okay um yeah, jake no, has okay, but jake has five fingers the avatars have five fingers yes okay that are humans but of the four children if we're just talking about um natayim loak kiri and tuke i believe if i'm not mistaken kiri and loak have five fingers but tuke and natayim have four fingers they don't have them or jake's so like the easy answer to this is that it's just like it's just genetics like it's a recessive trait so you have like a certain percent chance of your offspring having four versus five fingers and like that's like prop like that's like just probably the answer but i feel like there's this is there is there something is there something deeper happening here with kiri and loak having five fingers but the other children took and Natayim, who do who I guess full spoilers now, like Natayim is the one who dies. He dies um, yes. towards the end of the film. Is there something more going on with the fact that they have four fingers? Because the, the film presents this as like, oh, all these kids have five fingers. And then if you're actually just like noticing it later on, like they don't. They all, all of them do. Only two of them have have five have five fingers or whatever. Um it's very interesting. Because it's not uh, it's yeah. like glossed over. I'll be honest, Scott. I don't know if I care at this point. Um sure. It this well the is movie like, hasn't set anything up for you to care sure. about this well, yeah, it, hasn't, exactly. it hasn't drawn your attention to it yet. But also this is kind of what I'm saying of like this is at when we're talking about that kind of stuff, we're almost getting deep into like the sweaty lore and stuff, which I sure. don't care about. And frankly, no matter how good these movies are, like I don't think I'm ever gonna care about it just because not because it's a failure of the movie, it's just not really what anything that i'm interested in like sure. again i found dune fascinating am i gonna like go be you know a, a dune stand kind of like you are and, you're not gonna get sweaty with know, brandon and me about dune read dunapedia and all this stuff no Dunapedia. Uh, i think those days are over for me honestly like maybe when i was into star wars when i was younger that was you know that was my my thing but okay. i don't know if i'm going to do that again with these sorts of big franchises but you know what I what I will say is again I I'm showing up to these because I want to see a great movie that is unique, you know, beautiful to look at, and if they throw some you know genuine emotion and heart and soul in there too, like they did, then that's just an added bonus. Um, but also, if you are wanting to you know be somebody like who who is into the lore and you know is trying to to track all this stuff and whatnot i think there are those conversations certainly there to be had i do think that the answer knowing jim cameron's how thorough he is on stuff it wouldn't surprise me if the answer is just genetics um 
like the whole like oh you have a 50 50 shot of having five fingers versus four fingers because your parents have five fingers and four fingers but um like that wouldn't surprise me if that's the answer but it almost feels like if that is the answer they would have just said that um rather than just sort of obscure like not drawing anyone's attention to it it's a very interesting choice i think especially because they make a big deal out of it being the sign of a half breed or whatever whereas like presumably the rest of the kids are would also be considered half breeds but don't have um the increased number of fingers or whatever specifically talking about toque and, and tie um again maybe it's also just symbolism for like these are like the good children or whatever um versus lowak and kiri who are a bit more um ostracized and whatnot for being different but anyway i don't even think it yeah i think there is an uh, a path you could go down that, that talks more about the lore at this point but it was just something interesting i noticed throughout the movie yeah um there were a lot of interesting things to notice in this movie scott there are there are no shortage of interesting things to notice sure. in this movie for sure yeah um again just like the the rendering of the you know some people say it's a video game you know i guess that's fine word but like just looking at their faces and everything, like the detail that just went into all that to make it look so real and immersive is like... Well, like, also my response to people who say that, what do you want it to look like? Yeah, like, why is it a bad blue thing? People. Yeah. What, like, what do you want them to look like? Do you want to look like fucking cats and it's like painted on makeup or something like that? Like, yeah. Like, I don't know what you, I don't know what you want. Like, it looking like a video game cutscene is like... It's just a really expensive video. Video games have great sure. graphics. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay, and? Yeah. I wish my All video right, games were this good. Jesus Christ. Before we go another hour deep, what's your favorite scene or moment? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think I have to. The, I, I debated about this for a while, and I'm just going to be super basic and go with um, Patacan or Piacan coming out of the water and landing on the... Uh, landing on the poacher ship and, and just wrecking house repeatedly. When that happened, um, it was the I'm yelling gif for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is, I mean, that again, that last hour is just kind of like wire to wire action. Like it's, it's oh, hard yeah. to Non-stop. delineate out certain, certain. The one weird it, thing but... about the last, the last hour too, j- just to point out, just to show that I'm being too excited about this and I don't really care that much about this. It is very strange that all the Met Kyena people just disappear um, in, in the last like 20 minutes of the movie. It is strange that that happens. Yeah. I, I hear you people out there. That is fair. It's not something I, th- I thought about. Uh, discuss, since we're comparing this to so many other things, discuss, are they the Gungans of, uh, of that? Are the Gungans? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I mean, just they're not living. Thought, un- yeah. They're not living underwater though, which the Gungans are doing. Is that guy? Is Cliff Curtis's character Boss Nass? Sure, if you want it. <laughs> Who's Jar Jar? It all comes back to the Phantom Menace, the most influential blockbuster of our generation, Scott. Who who is who is Jar Jar in the movie? Um, I don't know, Spider. <laughs> oh God! But he's not. He's not one of the Metcaina though. You have to pick I know. I, I just, I just said whatever came to my mind. Um, sure. My favorite scene or moment, Scott. I, I, I really like the scene you mentioned earlier um, involving Loak. You know, first getting 
yeah. you know, going out with the the son of the, the chief and his yeah, buddies. Yeah. And um and then they have, you know, them acting like they're going to patch things up and then, you know, they actually just want to leave him out there to die. Um and you know, there's always a bigger fish. And then even just the image of like him waking up and being on the on, back of the whale the thing tulkin, was yeah. just like really sick. Um so yeah, that that stands out for me. So much stands out for me. Um, I mean, I I know that I've like tried to hone in on a couple of more critical points and you know holes or things that we expect to be patched up in future films. That's just because I knew Scott was going to be coming out of the gate hot, um, and you know oh, yeah, I wanted to try to balance it as much as possible because you know our our opinions are not necessarily reflecting the majority right now. I mean, there are a lot of people who like this movie. It has positive reviews, uh, but there are oh, also yeah. plenty of haters out there. Um, and Whatever, so man. I, I think, you know, again, I, I, what I'm trying to read also the negative reviews and understand where they're coming from. And on some, you know, sometimes I just don't understand, right? Because I, I love the movie. And so there's certain things I'm never going to get past, but there are other things that, were pointed out that like I can understand the issues but again at the end of the day he just James Cameron just makes it work right like I, I don't know how to necessarily even explain it it's just when you're watching it you you understand and I just yeah. haven't felt that in a while and so whatever flaws just, just don't feel as important in the grand scheme of things so obviously you say there are yeah, I mean, this this film, I think, has a better Rotten Tomato, just as a point of, like, like versus dislike, not, like, a Metacritic and average review score, but, like, it has a better Rotten Tomato score than I think the first movie did. You say there are haters out there, Scott, and there definitely are. I think those are more siloed on film Twitter. The film has a 93% audience score. It has an A cinema score. People who go to see that have gone and seen this movie really like this film. It is, in spite of its length, and in spite of how, again, there are very vocal people out there trying to clown on it, I think, if you're in those spaces, I think people are really liking this movie. It is technically underperforming its expectations this weekend domestically, domestically at the box office. I It also made like more than twice what the first movie made in its first weekend. Because what's so notable about the first movie is it just played for months. People kept going back over and over again to see it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether people are going to go back over and over again to see a three-hour and 12-minute movie. Granted, the first one was two hours and 40 minutes or whatever, so it's not like it's that much longer than the first one. But it didn't become the highest-grossing film of all time like Avengers Endgame did. It became the highest-grossing film of all time because people saw it, were just freaking wowed by it, and went back, told everyone they knew about it, went back over and over again. And people like this film. I wouldn't surprise me if it has a similar trajectory. James Cameron is definitely like a film Twitter type director, though. Like he is just like beloved on film Twitter because he is like he just loves movies and like the theatrical experience and everything. So um, yeah. I, I bring up the haters thing simply because there are some critics actually who I some of the critics that I follow the closest have not enjoyed this movie and have given it quite harsh reviews, actually. Um, Out of curiosity, if you go look, Well, Mark Kermo did. I was going to say, if you go look at my TikTok that I just posted a little while ago, um, I briefly have a green screen of his review in there, but also you can watch his review on YouTube, and he, he just thinks it's all a bunch of nonsense um, and boring and a slog and all that. And Adam Kempinar, as well, from Film Spotting, gave it like one and a half star on uh, Letterboxd. So... Um, 
Couldn't be there me. are haters there. I don't necessarily get it. It just, you know, but it is its own thing. There's no denying that. Scott, let's put a score on it. Avatar the Way of Water out of 10. Uh, it's it's a it's probably a nine out of ten movie in my opinion that will always be a ten out of ten in my heart. Um, so I'm gonna give it a nine point five. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Split the difference. Eight point yeah. six. I loved it, Scott. Um, it was yeah. it was so much fun to watch. Um, again, the yeah, time did not feel did not feel that long. It just there are times when it's when you're just watching it and it's like, wow, this is what movies can feel like in a theater. Um, you know, you do yeah. the Nicole Kidman face for sure at certain times in this movie. Um, Simply so. put, Awa Awa did provide. Awa and James James Cameron did provide, uh, but just don't make us wait as long for the next one, James. That's my only request. Two I don't years think you on will. the calendar. But uh, yeah, all right, Scott. That should do it for our review of Avatar: The Way of Water. We're gonna take a short break, and when we come back, uh, we have some more award season uh, nominations to talk about. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, I hope you're sitting down because I have some exciting news. The Golden Globes are back. Hollywood's biggest night. Oh, um, yeah. As many have commented, maybe they're not super excited that they're back. You know, the Golden Globes took uh, one year off. Um, forced hi- a forced they, hiatus. <laughs> they solved racism in that one year enough to say we're coming back. Uh, but, yeah, it was diversity concerns were a lot of uh, a lot of the reason that they decided to take a year off, especially diversity in the membership of the actual Hollywood Foreign Press Association. But they are back now, uh, Scott. And yeah, as you say, they're back on NBC. It's going to be just like old times. And uh, I believe I saw Gerard Carmichael is going to be hosting the ceremony. Um, Just like old times, as in on a Tuesday night. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that was what I was going to say. The the one difference is... uh, because of football, I believe um, they're not going to be, be putting this on Sunday night. It's going to yes. be uh, on a Tuesday. The club's going to be going up on a Tuesday. Uh, on a Tuesday, which, yes, with with Jared Carmichael hosting. That is true. Sure, why not? Uh, why not, Scott? Um, you know, it, it remains to be seen whether the Golden Globes is actually important or a tastemaker or anything like that um, anymore. But for our purposes, you know, it does tend to be a pretty good. A preview as we get deeper into Oscar season of what we certainly like to talk about it on this podcast as it is our episode zero from way back in the day. That is true. It, it, it has a lot of nostalgia value for us, but um, nomination, Scott, uh, best motion picture drama, Avatar, the way of water. I've heard of it. Um, Elvis, the Fablemans, Tar and Top Gun Maverick. So two Based. huge blockbusters an absolute, getting in there. An absolute yeah. base list in drama. At the at the end of the day, you know, we could see the two highest grossing movies of the year, Scott. I mean, obviously, Top Gun Maverick is number one right now. Way of Water definitely has a good chance to be number two, um, nominated for Best Motion Picture Drama, and even possibly nominated for Best Picture. So um, that is, you know, it, that could be a bad thing in some circumstances, but not in this case where the movies are both really good, right? Um, 
this, you know, it's exciting to see a move, you know, that these movies, which have captured the culture are also going to, you know, be nominated for awards. Um, you know, may, maybe this will, will satisfy some of the people who are like, well, I've never heard of any of these movies that get nominated for awards. Right. Maybe, maybe people will come around and understand, no, they're trying to nominate the best films. Of course they don't always do that, but, um, Marvel just really hasn't ever had one of the best films. So, um, that's why they haven't been nominated. I, I was just looking up to see what the highest grossing movies of 2020 were. Cause I was, I was thinking about this. This is the worldwide box office. So take it with a grain of salt. Um, Top Gun Maverick is number one, as you've mentioned, 1.5 million worldwide or 1.5 billion worldwide. Do you want to guess what two, three, and four are? Black Panther, Wakanda forever. No, it's only been out for a couple of weeks. Not that is note, number five. Right? For context, Black Panther is number five. Okay. Uh, two is Jurassic World Dominion. Three right. is Doctor Strange. Is Elvis four number is, four? Uh, Rise of Gru, baby. Minion sequel. Let's oh, go. of course. Hell yeah, yeah brother. The, the gentle, gentle minions, minions are strong. Out. Let's yeah, get they turned out. Um, but anyway, <laughs> Scott, these are all movies that, again, have a very good shot at getting a Best Picture nomination. In the case of Elvis, The Fablemans, and Tar... I yeah. think they're absolutely getting in. Uh, I think Top Gun Maverick is pretty close to getting in, uh, pretty close to being a, a shoe in. The Way of Water, we're just going to have to see how the discourse evolves, obviously, because it just came out. Uh, it's Jim Cameron. It'll, it, like, it'll probably get nominated. The last like, movie the first one was nominated. Almost like, won. So, yeah. yes, you would think that it is going to be in there, especially with 10. You know, we know there's going to be 10 slots this year. Also, like what, what frankly, frankly put, what critics think of Avatar, and again, it is mostly positive, it just doesn't matter for awards. See Elvis. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there are plenty of critics who like Elvis. I mean, I do think it matters to some degree, again. Like, you know, again, movies like Empire of Light and the Whale, to go back to those examples, are bombing in terms of their, like, their awards That's fair. Uh, probabilities are, you know, plummeting because of the i think i think largely because of the, the conversation the Luke that, that's that's fair i guess what i meant to say is that if a film is in the mainstream consciousness like avatar will be whether critics pan it or not i think it doesn't really matter what critics think about the movie it's ultimately going to come down to like the prestige of the people making the film and i just think jim yeah. cameron like he doesn't miss and he and i'm sure he's like one of, he's surely one of the most well-respected filmmakers out there of course, Scott, the Golden Globes are still splitting things up. So that was the drama category in the musical yeah. or comedy best picture category. We have Babylon, uh, The Banshees of Ben and Sharon, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Glass Onion, Knives Out Mystery, and Triangle of Sadness. Maybe the, maybe Triangle of Sadness being the one, um, you know, slight surprise there, the Palm d'Or winner um, from director Ruben Ostland. Um, Scott, the first thing I want to say is I actually think that knock on wood all of these movies kind of fit the musical or comedy uh <laughs> category for once certainly i think triangle of sadness is a comedy glass onion is um babylon she's of sharon is a dark comedy but it is a comedy um and then babylon yeah i don't know babylon might be the kind of maybe like a musical comedy hybrid in a way uh and then everything everywhere all is it gonna sorry is it actually gonna be a musical are there gonna be musical elements to babylon well, I, I don't know in terms of like, no, there's, it's not going to be like La La Land, right? But okay, it seems okay. like music is going to play a large part of the movie. Like it's not, again, it's not literally going to be a musical, but I it's see. like, 
you could see them like throwing it in there just because the, the Hurwitz oh, well, score. has a lot of music in it. Yeah, yeah. there's the Hurwitz score, and I'm sure there'll be some. Should Tar have been in musical or comedy, Scott? If Tar had been in musical or comedy, what would you have said? I would have just laughed. That's what Look, the score Scott, the score just got disqualified this past week from Oscar contention because it has too much of Mahler, apparently. It did, yeah. That, yeah. Is, that is unfortunate. But, um, Scott, as far as these movies go, I think, um, you know, obviously every, Everything Everywhere All at Once is, you know, definitely getting nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. The Banshees of Inner Sharon is slowly making a you know, run to the top, in my opinion. I think I think it's kind of flying under the radar a little bit, but, like, this movie's stock is continuing to rise. It just dropped on HBO Max. There are not a lot of people out there that do not like this movie. This is one of the most well-liked movies, I would say, of the whole bunch. Sure. Um, whereas, you know, Everything Everywhere All at Once has its haters. Tar has its haters. Um, Babylon is definitely going to have some haters. Um, sure. Already does. So, Avatar has haters. Elvis. Triangle of yeah. Sadness is polarizing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and I don't even think Triangle of Sadness is necessarily in line for a Best Picture nomination. But it is interesting yeah, to see it. Uh, yeah. it. That strikes me as more like, a, well, we need a fifth film, you know, to fill out the musical or comedy category. So, Who, who is a hater of Glass Onion, Scott? That's going to be the clear Best Picture winner, I think. <laughs> yeah. If only. But, you know, The Banshees of Inner Sharon is a movie that could, like, possibly benefit from the preferential ballot like we're talking about it's sure. going to be nominated in probably three acting categories the screenplay is going to be nominated like it, it's really going to be you know it is going to be one of the most nominated films at the oscars like i feel very confident saying that and martin mcdonough was very close to winning best picture for his last film so um just something to think about because i don't know if i think people are still talking a lot about like the Fablemans and Tar, right, and everything, everywhere, all at once, as being like the the top movies. But um, I think this movie is coming coming on strong, and they're not, you know, it is a very well liked movie. Like I said, Babylon, you know, obviously hasn't come out yet, but it's like this is a very Hollywood foreign press movie, like for them to nominate. So I'm not surprised that it it got in there. Um, Look, all I'm going to say is with Babylon, if Mank couldn't win Best Picture, Babylon's not winning Best Picture. And it is very polarizing, um, as we've said. Yeah. So it seems that it's going to be. Scott, looking at the acting categories, uh, best performance by an actress in a motion picture drama, Kate Blanchett in Tar, Olivia Coleman in Empire of Light, Viola Davis in The Woman King, Ana de Armas in Blonde, Michelle Williams in The Fableman, and then as far as actress on the musical or comedy side, Leslie Manville in Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. Uh, Margot Robbie in Babylon, yeah. Anya Taylor-Joy in The Menu, Emma Thompson in Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, and, of course, Michelle Yeoh and Everything Everywhere All at Once. Anything uh, of note there to you, Scott, other than, you know, some of the quirky things that got in there in musical or comedy? Uh, so what's the other one besides Leslie Manville? Is there one that also draws your eye? Or I mean, Anya Taylor-Joy, like... Sure, yeah. That, sure. Yeah. And, I mean, even Emma Thompson, like... Good luck to you, Leo Grant is not a, a movie that many people were talking about. That's true. I, I did get the chance to see that movie at like a, uh, I guess it was like some sort of like FYC screening that they did like months ago in in New York at Lincoln Center. And Emma Thompson, good. That movie, mixed. Good movie yeah. that doesn't know how to, doesn't know how to finish. Uh, pardon the pun. Um, since it is about a male prostitute. Um, yeah, unfortunately. But it was interesting to see her. I guess not totally surprising. I feel like Emma Thompson is a big HFPA gal. 
I, I feel like the HFPA eat that shit up. Yeah. Michelle, Scott, it feels like presumably though. So yeah, yeah. it feels like we kind of have our best actress lineup at this point. Like, I think it's going to be, I mean, Kate Blanchett, Michelle Yeoh. I really think that Viola Davis is going to be in there. Um, I think that Margot Robbie will probably sneak in there too. And, you know, it's hard to bet against uh, Michelle Williams in the Fableland. So, oh, um, so Olivia Coleman out in the cold. Okay. I just think she could get left out in the cold. I, I mean, again, I'll probably sound foolish for that because it's Olivia Coleman, but it's just that movie is just, it's not. I don't, I don't know if you've heard, Scott, but Oscars are pretty white. Um, we'll see if uh, she can beat out Viola yeah. Davis. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that fifth slot is probably between Olivia Coleman, um, Margot Robbie. Olivia Coleman and Margot Robbie, I would say. I really think that Blanchett, Yo, Michelle Williams, and Viola Davis are in. I need, honestly, Scott, I need to see Woman King. That is a movie that I need to see. Is it's it on, on Netflix yet? Uh, no. Again, it's on one of the, it's on my 2022 watch list. It's one of the few movies that's left on there. But yeah. Blanchett, uh, the obvious front runner right now. And it doesn't feel like a lot is slowing her down. Um, it doesn't seem that way, now. Actor-wise, you have uh, on the drama side, Austin Butler and Elvis, Brendan Fraser and The Whale, Hugh Jackman in The Sun, Bill Nye in Living, and Jeremy Pope in The Inspection. Yeah. And then on the musical or comedy side, you have Diego Calva in Babylon, Daniel Craig in Glass Onion, Adam Driver in White Noise, like that one, uh, Colin Farrell in The Banshees of Inisherin. Refines in the menu. Scott, it feels like this race is kind of shaping up to be a Sylvester Stallone versus Mark Rylance type race in the in uh, in the sense that it is a beloved sort of movie star in Brendan Fraser, who like is suddenly getting a lot of buzz for like this really you know soul bearing performance apparently in The Whale, versus a far more established actor. Um, in Colin Farrell, who, um, you know, is just kind of lurking there, ready to play spoiler, um, you know, at the when when the Oscars roll around. Like maybe, you know, obviously Brendan Fraser could get the Golden Globe. You know, there's obviously a, a lot of weird history there and he's not going to be in, in attendance and, um, and all of that. But um, it feels like he, the, you know, the, with with uh, Colin Farrell being separated from him, um, he's, he is going to get the win here at the Golden Globes. And then, you know, maybe that is going to lead people to think, hey, he's going to he's got, you know, he's got to be the front runner for the Oscars. But I just think Colin Farrell, like, I think he's he's right there. And I would not be surprised if he kind of, like I said, plays spoiler in the end uh, when the Oscars actually come around. Because, again, a lot of people like that movie. A lot of people like his performance even if he doesn't have the same sentimental narrative going for him that Brendan Fraser does. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. There's three months left still before the Oscars happen if the Brendan Fraser train continues to chug along unimpeded. I think that'll be interesting to watch. Like the like looking at the SAG Awards, what happens? I think that'll be probably the most interesting barometer. Um, mm -hmm for it obviously that's months away at this point so there's still lots of time for the conversation to develop further but it does feel like a two-horse race with fraser ahead sort of like michelle yo and kate blanchett feels like a two-horse race with one person you know ahead of the other 
Best Supporting Actress, Scott. Uh, this is not divided up. It's just an indie movie. Um, Carrie Mulligan, and she said Dolly DeLeon in Triangle of Sadness. Jamie Lee Curtis in Everything Everywhere All at Once. And then, Scott, to me, you know, this, this is the muddiest race of all of them. Uh, but I think a maybe two favorites are slowly starting to emerge. And those would be Carrie Condon, again, in The Banshee's Been a Sharon, and Angela Bassett in Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Um, I really mm -hmm. think they are the two front runners in this category at the moment. Again, you have Angela Bassett, you know, beloved actress, been around for a long time probably been nominated for an Oscar at least once before, although I don't know off the top of my head. Um, she has a very emotional role in Black Panther Wakanda Forever. You know, she has some, some of the only scenes in that movie that will make you feel anything um, involve her character, you know, obviously lamenting the, the death of, of Chadwick Boseman, um, of T'Challa. Uh, and then again, Car Carrie Condon, again, I think kind of in the same place as her co-star Colin Farrell of like she she could play the spoiler here um because I'm sure a lot of people are going to be rooting for Angela Bassett to win this um it does feel like they're the, they're the two that have separated themselves slightly at this point but like you said there's still a lot to take shape with this race I do think it is still the one that is probably the most up in the air yeah she was nominated for what's love got to do with it back in the day I knew there was um, some she, like music biopic or something. Yeah, and she won the Golden Globe for that film, although she was only nominated at the awards. So there's some history with the Globes there. They clearly like her when they have nominated her in the past, which is just the one time, I suppose. But it will be interesting to see. I feel like I have no opinion on this whatsoever right now. A very powerful performance from her in Wakanda Forever, though, no doubt. It's the best performance in the movie for me, for sure. So, it, I mean... I don't think this movie should be winning anything, in my personal opinion. But you know, Not even you can do worse. Maybe. Um, supporting actor Scott Brendan Gleeson in the Banshees of Inisherin, Barry Keegan in the in the Banshees of Inisherin, Brad Pitt in Babylon, Kihei Brad Pitt Kwan in the Banshees in, of Inisherin. Oh my! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kwan in Everything yeah. Everywhere All at Once, and Eddie Redmayne in The Good Nurse. Scott. Kihei Kwan is going to be winning the Academy Award. I'm going to go ahead and say it here on December the 18th. Lock it in. He's going to win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress and or Best Supporting Actor, and uh, <laughs> will also be winning the Golden Globe, I believe, for Best yeah. Supporting Actor. Um, it's if, a weak. It's a it's a weak category. It is, yeah. To be honest, and again, maybe we're talking about sort of the sentimental narrative versus the you know spoilers in the case of some of these other races, I think you're going to get your sentimental narrative here, no matter what with Kihei Kwan, because obviously this guy has a great story of yeah. going from being sort of typecast and, you know, and he's great in the movie roles. Yeah. Um, and obviously his most notable role being as a sort of stereo, you know, Asian stereotype in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And now, you know, and the 30, 40 years later, yeah, he was given, he's been given another opportunity to like as a serious actor in this movie. And, you know, he, he is great in the movie and it will be a great story. And I'm sure he'll have a great speech as well. What if, if, if and when he wins this award. So I don't think there's a lot of intrigue with that race, but, um, you know, two, two actors from the Banshees of Sharon in there. Um, they're probably going to steal votes from each other. Yeah. And then 
who you know who takes the final two spots in this category i think remains to be seen because i don't certainly i don't think eddie redmayne is is a lock for the oscar do you think you think both brendan gleason and barry keown will be nominated for the for the academy award yes okay again i think you are, you are all a lot of nominations yeah i was gonna say you're, i am you're very uh, in on branches. i people really enjoy this movie again i have not it's seen a good like, movie. anyone who doesn't like this movie um it's a good movie I so I'm I'm trying to read the tea leaves a little bit more than maybe I have done it past years again because it's like I'm into oh it. yeah of, of course the Fablemans tar or whatever but like these movies like that that are always at the forefront here at this time of year don't always end up there at, when all is said and done that's true <laughs> Scott last a word to talk about before we go best director James Cameron Avatar the Way of Water Daniel Kwan and Daniel Shiner for everything everywhere all at once Baz Luhrmann and Elvis. Martin McDonough in The Banshees of Sharon and Steven Spielberg for The Fablements. Scott, talk for a second because my voice is going out a little bit. Sure, no worries. Um, can you entertain the world, Scott Harvey? Hear me out on this. James Cameron wins Best Director for Avatar Way of Water. Sure. But the chances of that are really low. Is he, He's probably not even going to get nominated, to be fair. I don't know if he will. Doesn't really well, feel like the obvious snub here. We haven't really been talking about a lot of snubs, I guess. No, we um, haven't. The, the movie that was most notably snubbed was Women Talking, did not get any major yeah. nominations. It did get a screenplay, but um the major snub here, Scott, is Todd Field, obviously, for Tar. Yeah. And yeah. I do think he will be in in the five for the Oscar. So maybe. But the question James is Cameron of these is of these five, is, is are these the five? <laughs> is Baz really getting nominated for Elvis? I mean, maybe he is. But... I I don't want to believe so, but I mean, again, maybe this is the Sarah Pauly, um, yeah, where Sarah Pauly will fit in because I, you know, I, I believe the same thing happened to Little Women, right? Like, I don't think it got nominated for many, if any, Golden Globes, um, because it was kind of in the weird space where it hasn't, it hadn't come out yet. Um, and there was yeah. conversations around it, like are happening with women talking now, like, oh, is it? Is this it? Is it over? Like, is it not even going to get nominated for any Oscars now? But it's not uh, out yet. Yeah. Obviously, it pulled through. Uh, Little Women. 1917 and, was a similar deal um, that same year because it didn't come out until January. But it was getting the nominations, I believe. Um, yes, but people didn't know what to make of it, I think, in terms of yeah. the discourse of it. Um, but anyway, it, it, it's interesting. I think that there's definitely a history there. It would not surprise me if James Cameron and Baz Luhrmann drop off this list for Sarah Polly and Todd Field. I think I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna go out of pocket here, Scott, and say that'd be pretty boring, in my opinion, if that were the case. Um, Cause just like, can you just, can you just name a list of like prestige filmmakers who made like important films in 20, in 2022? And like, okay, there's your list of best directors. Not saying that they aren't the best directors of 2022, but like, the list could be more interesting. Like, I don't think Baz Luhrmann deserves the best director nomination, but it's it's something to talk about. It's it's funny and something to talk about. It's kind of like the Todd. Well, the Todd Phillips just enraged me, but and that's beside the point. I mean, you and you have to consider though that people are more conscious of the diversity stuff nowadays, and yeah, there are no women nominated for best director at the Golden Globes. It is a thing. People are talking about it. You have to think that the Oscar voters are going to have it on their minds when they go in there. Also, and that group is so much more diverse than the Globes. Yeah. Even with like the diversity, 
reconciling within the globes. Like the Oscar pool is so much more diverse. Than it did. It didn't seem to have much effect because the nominees are still not very diverse that we were have been reading out here. But um, yeah, but yeah, the Oscars. You know, the last two best director winners have been females. Um, and I think sure. if you're looking at the female directors who in line for, are in line for this, it's basically uh sarah Pauly and then gina prince, gina prince Bythewood. Bythewood. and then yeah. i don't think there's anyone else who really has a chance and i honestly don't really think gina prince Bythewood has that much of a chance maybe i mean the women king is probably on the bubble now for best picture is one of those movies that's on the on the bubble but um sarah Pauly, it, it feels like is going to be the quote-unquote token female nominee now in this category uh, when we get to the oscars and so yeah that somebody's gonna have to be bumped out here I'm very curious. Again, the, the movie's not out yet. To your exact point, I'm curious if the, what the narrative around the film is when it does come out. I saw it, you know, a couple like several months ago at the New York Film Festival. Thought it was solid, um, but nothing that really. I haven't thought that much about the movie. I guess I'll put it that way. It has not stuck with me like a lot of other movies um, have from the festival, namely <laughs> After Sun, even something like Decision to Leave. Um, you know, I think there's there's definitely a lot of movies that have stuck with me more. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which you talked about earlier, that you're seeing tomorrow, like those are movies that have stuck with me a little bit more out of the festival run. But yeah, I'm I'm just curious to see where the conversation goes because, like you said, there's not a lot of other filmmakers to choose from, so to speak. Like, I mean, to be fair, I guess Jane Campion and Greta Gerwig. I mean, there was Greta Gerwig or whatever for Best Director, um, but. Uh, I, whom I'm, I'm forgetting Chloe Zhao that's who I'm forgetting like there weren't that many other like female filmmakers really in the conversation in spite of having great movies made by by women in those years like After Sun for example like just talking about a movie we talked we were we talked about last week that we both gave tens to like Charlotte Wells is not in the conversation for a best director nomination although certainly would be deserving for my she for absolutely my should be yes exactly what I'm saying but like if we're just talking about women who are in the conversation <laughs> to your point if if you if we do believe the Oscars are going to put at least one woman in the best director category, which maybe they won't, maybe they won't this year, it feels like it, it's it's probably Sarah Pollock, unless the conversation really dies down. If they don't, they are going to have to be prepared to endure a lot of you know conversation about it. Yeah, right, and I, or or wrongly sure. so because because I think to your point, right? Obviously, I've made a big deal about this in the past, but that's because there were people who were deserving there sure. were women who were deserving that did not get in and people who were not deserving men who were not deserving that did get in um maybe yeah. this year is a case where they can throw five men out there and it's like okay yeah i get it like these these are all these all make sense but if baz lerman is one of those men then yeah, yeah. i will probably all you'll probably also hear me saying uh sarah Pauly, uh gina prince bywood uh you know whatever because it's not for me it's not as much a question of again we don't want to get to a token point of where we're just nominating a woman just to nominate a woman we should still be nominating the five but there are deserving you know, best directors but the past yes. few years there have been at least one there has been at least one woman in you know the five best direct directing jobs of the year if not multiple and as a matter of fact spoiler alert one of my top films one of my top two or three films of the year is directed by a woman um and i will have others in my top 10 and 20. so like 
I, I don't know what to say. Like, like you're saying, Charlotte Wells, yes, she deserves to be in the five, but she's not even getting getting talked about. So I don't even know that that's something worth making a big deal about because it's like it, it was never going to happen, and it's yeah. not worth it's not worth getting upset about it because yeah. as and opposed no, to like, and there's no like way Greta Gerwig old. not getting nominated again for like Little Women or something. That's something that was very much in the realm of possibility. The movie was recognized in many other categories, and yet they still gave Todd Phillips the nomination. For Joker yeah. instead. And there's no real world where we, we think that <laughs> Daniels or Spielberg or McDonough are not going to get nominated, really. I'd take Jim Cameron over Steven Spielberg in this case, but that's just me. All right, Scott. It was a long episode. Probably not as long as Avatar The Way of Water, but... Um... God, I hope not. No, we're good. We're under <laughs> time. time. I, I think it's it's time to shut shut it down uh, for, for this yeah. episode, but um, Scott, where can our listeners find you on social media? At S. Shelton 2013. And you can find me at Scarvy Dent on all social media, including TikTok. Again, I just posted my review of Avatar The Way of Water. So check it out over there for my three minute thoughts on Avatar The Way of Water, even though you just listened to an hour's worth of them or whatever. But at Scarvy Dent on all social media platforms. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the pod. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Even if you can't support us over there, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you will be back for our next episode of the podcast on which we will be reviewing Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.